We have come to chapter 3 in our series through the book of Colossians. And if you've been visiting with us or you're new here, uh, I want to let you know that we are working our way through this letter. It's an ancient letter. It comes from the first century AD, written by the Apostle Paul to a young church in Colossae, which is modern-day Turkey. It's ancient Asia Minor. And he was writing to correct a problem or speak to an issue that was present there in among the Colossians. And that was this. Some people were saying that true maturity, true wholeness comes by some other means than Jesus Christ alone. And Paul is writing to them to tell them, no, true maturity, true spiritual wholeness comes from one place and that is from Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 2, you are filled in him. So don't go looking for maturity or satisfaction or wholeness in any other way. But Jesus, that's why at the central part of this letter is this exhortation in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, when he says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus as Lord, you've received Jesus as the Lord of your life, so keep on walking in him. Make decision after decision in light of the fact that Jesus is the Lord of your life. And now as we get to chapter 3, we get to a very practical section of this letter in which Paul is talking about the specific implications of what it means to have Jesus as your Lord, to have the life of Christ in you. And that's what we begin to look at. Now, just for the sake of understanding the, the flow of our church schedule, this will be the, first, the, the last time for a couple weeks that we'll be in the book of Colossians because next week, uh, Will Galk will be preaching to us and the week after that, we'll take a little break from our series uh, to focus on the church's responsibility toward its community in terms of ministries and services as on February 2nd we highlight some uh, ministries. So it won't be until three weeks that we're back in Colossians. And I think this is a good place to kind of cap this off for the next three weeks as we begin to look at this topic of our life in Christ. Now, there's an interesting idea in the science of physics, and that's this idea that there may be multiple universes, parallel universes, in many ways similar to ours, but with just little differences. Now, I don't know all the science and all the theories behind that. I've, I'd been reading and listening to some things on that, but there's one thing for sure, and that it sure does provide some interesting springboard for the imagination. Uh, for instance, imagine a parallel universe that's like ours in nearly every respect except for one difference. Dogs can talk. Okay, now that would be an interesting universe to live in. Or a world that's just like ours except for one difference, and that is the sky is purple instead of blue. I mean, this kind of idea is out there that there may be these parallel universes. Now, again, whether or not this is true, it at least provides a platform for the imagination to, to say this. If there is a universe and you could just change one thing about it, what would it be? Imagine a world in which it's very similar to our own except for this one difference. Instead of acting in self-interest, instead of acting out of selfishness, the people in that world act out of others, the good for others. Imagine a world like that. Imagine a world in which husbands and wives actually serve and honor each other, in which children honor their parents, in which parents don't grieve and embitter their children, in which workers work diligently, not just when the boss is around, but all the time, and they do it cheerfully. Imagine a world like that. Like, how different would that be? 
See, it would not only change the relationships between people, it would also change the way that we approach different things in life. In that world in which people act out of the best interest for others and not just themselves, it would change the way people view money. Instead of viewing money and wealth as a means to assert uh, their prestige or position, they would use wealth to serve other people. Power, for example. In our world, power is often used as a sledgehammer to smash things down or to assert the, person's, the person who holds the power, assert their own prestige or influence. In, in such a world, power would be used only to help people. What a universe this would be. And the reason why I mention these topics, these relationships, such as parents and children, husbands and wives, employees and employers, power and wealth, is because these are the topics that Paul brings up here in Colossians chapter 3, in which it's almost as if he's imagining an alternate universe, a parallel world in which instead of the, the gravity, gravitational pull being on self, pleasing myself, which leads to brokenness and fragmentation and splintering, the gravitational pull is love, which produces peace and a bond and proper relationships. So look at verse 5, when Paul begin, of chapter 3 in Colossians, where Paul begins to list certain things to put away. What these things have in common, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, all these things tend to splinter and fracture and break and disintegrate. And then when he goes on in verse 12, he says, put on then, holy and beloved. And notice what these virtues have in common is that they tend to heal. They tend to bind together. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. What these have in common is that they tend to bring together what should be together. What the vices have in common that he begins listing in verse 5 is that they tend to fracture and splinter and break apart things that are good and beautiful. What a world this would be in which instead of brokenness and fragmentation, there be wholeness and healing. You notice this in verse 14. He says, above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What a world that would be. And the question, of course, is this. Is this possible? Is it even possible to have a world in which instead of people acting out of self-interest, which leads to fragmentation and brokenness, people act in the interest of others, which leads to healing and peace? Is that even possible? And as we look at human history and the way people have acted in the past, we'll notice that human nature remains so unchanged. I mean, Entire civilizations have come and gone. Mountain ranges have changed their shapes. And yet the shape of the human heart remains ever so stubbornly self-centered. Now you don't have to survey the history of, of humanity to understand this. Just take a peek inside your own heart. And ask yourself, how can the center of gravity shift from being self-centered to being other-centered? You'd have to admit that in order for this to happen... It would require nothing less than new life. <laughs> nothing less than new life would produce such a change. And it is precisely new life that Paul is talking about in the first verses of chapter 3. He says, if you have been 
raised with Christ, there is resurrection life, seek the things that are above. He says in verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There is a new life he is pointing out to the Colossians that they have by virtue of their faith in Christ and from that new life they are to work out the implications of their relationship with God. Which means this, and this is a central point for us to grasp is that true wholeness and healing and maturity does not come by working toward a life you don't have. Instead, it comes by working from a life that you've been given. Now let me say that again, that, that wholeness and maturity does not come by working toward a life that you don't have. Instead, it comes by working from a life that you have been given. In fact, that's why Paul, for throughout the course of chapter 2, has been pushing back against this idea that wholeness can be achieved by our self-effort. Because if wholeness and maturity could be achieved by the things that we can accomplish, that would only serve to reinforce our pride, which is the problem in the first place. So this wholeness and healing that people are aiming for cannot be accomplished by their own efforts to achieve it, but it can only be worked out because of a life that has been given. And the theme, therefore, of these four verses in Colossians chapter 3 is our, our new life in Christ. And we're going to observe three parts of this passage. All right, verses Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, three parts to this passage, three parts to this message. And, and first of all, this we're going to look at it in this order. The facts of life in Christ, the focus of life in Christ, we see this in verse, verses 1 and 2 where Paul says, seek the things that are above, set your minds on the things that are above. And then in verse 4, the future of life in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So the facts of our new life in Christ, the focus of life in Christ, and the future of life in Christ. So first of all, we're going to look at the facts of new life in Christ. And notice that Paul is, in verse 1, he's laying down the facts Something that is true about the people in Colossae. People that have believed in Jesus Christ. And there are three things that we need to understand about this, the facts about this new life in Christ. And first of all, life in Christ is given to those who believe in Christ. Life in Christ is given to those who believe in Christ. In chapter 2 and verse 12, this is, this is clear, this idea of life in Christ being given to those who believe, who have faith in Christ. Look at chapter 2 and verse 12. Paul says this, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised, we're seeing the same words there, raised with him, raised with Christ, as in chapter 3 and verse 1. You were raised with him, how? Through what? What is the means by which we were raised with Christ? It is through faith in him. Okay, so because of a person's faith in Jesus Christ, it is because of a person's faith in Jesus Christ that a person can be said to be raised with Christ, have this new life in Christ. It's not something that we earn, it's something that we receive. Faith is just the hand that stretches out to receive that which we could not earn on our own. It'd be kind of like this. Suppose that you were on a sports team. And right before the championship game, you get this injury, you can't participate in the game. Badly sprained ankle or something. And yet your team goes on to win the victory. 
You're wearing the same jersey they're wearing, and that yet you didn't even step on the field. You didn't even make a single pass, and yet they win the championship, and you can say, we won, even though you didn't contribute to the game at all. Why? Because you're on the team. You're closely identified with that team that their victory becomes your victory. In, in a similar way, we couldn't do anything to earn our salvation. Jesus did everything that was necessary to bring us into a right relationship with, with him, with God. And because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we are so closely identified with Jesus that, that God considers that what Jesus has done is true of us. So the championship that Jesus has won becomes our victory through faith in Christ. So life in Christ is given to those who believe in Christ. Here's a second fact about this new life in Christ. The fact, we're looking at the facts of new life in Christ, and that is that it is hidden for now. Look at verse 3. It says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. What that means is this. Those who believe in Jesus, yes, yes, they have new life. But that new life, it is not readily apparent from the outside. Like, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when you first trusted in Christ, it's not as if a halo suddenly descended upon your head and everybody was able to see, oh, that person has new life in Christ. Or it's not as if when you first trusted in Christ, there is a fanfare, a trumpet fanfare, and, and suddenly everybody, everybody knows, oh, that, that person has, has new life in Christ. No, Paul is saying that this, this life in Christ, for now, is hidden. A person who believes in Jesus Christ and suppose they were ill at the time, they're still going to be sick. A person who is aging when they believe in Christ is still going to be aging. A person who is young and immature when they believe in Christ will still, a moment after they believe in Christ, still be young and immature. The fact that a person has new life in Christ, it, it, it means that that life is in some way hidden. And the main difference is not what happens to a person on the outside, although that will begin to change, but what happens to them on the inside. I'll give a couple examples of this, this inner hidden change. It's a particularly famous example from the life of Augustine of Hippo who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries. Now here's a man whose writings have greatly influenced uh, the Christian church throughout the centuries. And before he became a Christian, he was fighting against the, the conviction of God in his heart. He had some deeply held lusts and ambitions. He didn't want to give up. And at one point when he was 31 years old, he was in a garden with a friend. He was wrestling about this. He, he knew that he should put his trust in Jesus Christ, but he wasn't ready to give up the things that he so loved. He, he writes that he can hear the voices from his past saying this, tomorrow tomorrow. He, he reached such a height of conviction that he, he thought he could hear the chanting of a child's voice saying, take up and read. Take up and read. And nearby him in the garden was a copy of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And he opened it up to chapter 13 verses 13 through 14 that said this, not in orgies and drunkenness not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And Augustine reports 
that at once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. He describes this event of when he came to Jesus, when he trusted in Christ, he, in a prayer to God. He says, you called and cried aloud and shattered my deafness. You are radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You are fragrant and I drew in my breath and now pant after you. I tasted you and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. Again, when he trusted in Christ, there was no halo that descended from heaven. There was no trumpet blast of a fanfare. Instead, there was an inner change, a hidden change that began to show itself in a changed life. Consider the change of the life that took place in the life of the Apostle Paul. When he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, what a radical turnabout. But it was so inward that when he came to Jerusalem, the, the Christians in Jerusalem still saw the same Saul of Tarsus that was wanting to persecute Christians. They were afraid of him. And yet the change was inner. It was hidden and it began to be manifested. We see this in, in your lives too. When people join the church here, stand in front of the church and give a, a testimony of how they trusted in Jesus Christ, how a radical change took place on the inside, how, how you turned from serving yourself and from all kinds of other loves and ambitions to making Jesus Christ your treasure. That's the kind of change that happens in a person's life when they trust in Christ. This change is hidden. Life in Christ is hidden, but Here's a third fact. We're looking at the facts of life in Christ, and that is that life in Christ is the basis for action. Notice the, the sequence here in verse 1. Colossians chapter 3, Paul is saying, if then you have been raised with Christ. So he's laying down the fact of life in Christ, and then he gives an action. So life in Christ is the basis for action. Here's the order. Fact, then act. That's the sequence in the motivation for Christian action. Fact, you have life in Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You've died to sin. And then from that fact comes the acts that you can accomplish as a Christian. Not the other way around. Why not tell lies, for example? Well, look at what Paul says here in verse 9. Do not lie to another. There is an act. But what's the fact? Seeing that you've put off the old self. Okay, here's another example. Why be compassionate and kind and humble and meek, etc.? Look at verse 12 when Paul is exhorting these things. That's the act. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness. What's the fact? You are God's chosen ones. You see the sequence? Fact, then act. Why forgive others? There is an act. Forgiveness. Why do you forgive others? Because of this fact. Look at verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against each other, forgiving each other, there's the act. Where's the fact? Because the Lord has forgiven you. Right? Fact of your relationship with Christ, and then act. And this means, for those of you who are believers in Christ struggling to live out the life of Christ in your life, your ability to change, your ability to conquer those lusts, that temper, that laziness, that tongue, will in a great deal depend on your grasping the fact of your life in Christ. 
And it's something that we so often tend to forget. We forget that we've been raised with Christ. We forget that we have new life in Christ. I don't know if you've ever had this experience of looking for something that you had in your hand. Has that ever happened to you? You're, you're wandering around, you're like, where is that screwdriver? Has anybody seen that screwdriver? Someone says, um, check your hand. Well, there it is, right? Even worse, have you ever had the experience of looking for a pair of glasses and they're on your face? Has anyone seen my glasses? Where are those glasses? You turn the house upside down before you finally realize, you look in the mirror. Oh, there they are. <laughs> that happens to us when we have access to the very thing that we need and we forget it. You know, my friends, the same thing happens to us spiritually. We turn our lives upside down looking for the perfect solution to get over our temper or our lust or, or whatever it is. And all along, we are raised with Christ. My friends, remember that fact about you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Remember that you have life in Christ. And so, Paul lays down here in this passage the facts of life in Christ. But a lot of times we have a hard time connecting the facts to our action. Right? It's one thing to know, okay, I'm raised with Christ. I have new life in Christ. And here's what I need to do about it. But how do I get from the fact of my life with Christ to my actions? It's if you've you ever had the experience of, of having an appliance you're trying to use and it's too far away from the outlet. Like, I need an extension cord. I need some way to get the power from here to here. As Christians, I need some way to get the power of having been raised with Christ to the day-to-day -day details of my life. Where does that come from? And here is the next movement in this passage. And that is our focus. Our focus. The facts of Christ, of life in Christ. You're raised with Christ. You've died to your old ways. You have new life in Christ. How do we move from the facts of that to the way it is lived out? And here it is. It's a focus on Christ. That's why Paul says, if you then have been raised with Christ, here it is, the focus. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. The focus of life in Christ. See, the way to connect fact to action is the focus of your heart. You see here in our text that Paul uses two similar expressions, seeking and setting your mind. You look, at, you look at verse 1, you see the word seek. And verse 2, you, you see this phrase, set your mind. And, and these describe the kind of focus that we have. And to take, taken together, it's evident that behind these expressions is the biblical concept of one's heart. So these two words, taken in combination, could be expressed this way. Set your heart on things above. Set your heart, the way that you think and, and the way that you prioritize and set goals and ambitions, set your heart on things above. Now, the, the heart is incredibly important. Your heart. Your heart is a metaphor for the, the manufacturing center of your desires. The heart is where the deepest desires of your being come out. 
And the powerful thing about the heart is that, as someone has said, what the heart finds most lovable, the will, the, the mind finds most reasonable, and the will finds most doable. What the heart finds most lovable, the mind finds most reasonable, and the will finds most doable. I'll, I'll illustrate it this way. Suppose you're driving along and, and you've kind of wanted a pickup truck for a little while. And you drive along the road and you happen to drive right by the dealership and you see it right there in the parking lot. And you're about to drive past, but then you think, it doesn't hurt just to check it out because it's almost as if you, you felt a little bump in the road and it felt like your steering wheel like jerked that way a little bit and you're like, maybe that's a sign, right? Oh, I don't know why the steering wheel, that was weird. Well, maybe I should pull in there. So you do and you get out and you, you look at it and you're like, I think that's the same one. That is the same one I've been looking at back in November. This is no accident. What do you know? There's a deal going on right now. Whoa, this is just lining up just perfectly. <laughs> what the heart finds most lovable, the mind finds most reasonable. And all the facts and all the reasons start flooding in. This is the day. It's just perfect. This is what I need to do. Because why? Because your heart has loved it. And so your mind, it, it makes perfect sense. And so your will finds most doable. My friends, this is why it's so important to guard what our hearts are set on. Because what your heart is set on is going to influence what your mind thinks about. And what your mind thinks about is going to influence what you find most doable. And that's why Paul says, if you want to turn the fact of your life in Christ with its radical implications for a new way of living, then you've got to connect the fact to your act by means of your focus. And that focus has to be the focus of your heart where you're setting your heart on things above and not on things on the earth. Where you're letting your affections and your longings be shaped by Jesus and who he is and not everything else. So what should our hearts focus on? You see it here in our text. Seek the things that are above, not the things that are in the, on the earth. Now, at first glance, you might read this and you might say, oh, so we're just supposed to think about heaven all the time. Someone comes to you and say, hey, can you help me make this decision about whether I should buy this car or, or do this and that? And you say, nope, sorry. I'm just thinking about heaven. Can't help you there. Now that would be the perfect setup for the accusation that someone is too heavenly minded to be what? Any earthly good, right? But this is not at all what Paul is talking about. Paul's not talking about having this sort of mindset, just, I'm just thinking about harps and clouds right now. Cannot think about anything else. No, because you see from the rest of the chapter, he's connecting this mindset with very concrete things. Sexual immorality, evil desire, anger, wrath, and malice. He's connecting this mindset to very concrete relationships, such as the relationship between husband and wife, parents and children, employees and employers. This is not some abstract, no, got to think about heaven all the time. No, this is connecting something that is real to something the way that we live. So what does it mean to seek the things that are above where Christ is? Here's what it means. It means to set, to let your heart and mind be governed by this reality 
that at the head of the universe and over all the details of my life is enthroned a king, King Jesus, who reigns and rules not by self-centeredness as so much of the, the world that we live in is dominated by today, but this king, the one who sits at the right hand of God, the one who is enthroned as king of kings and lord of lords, he rules not by selfishness, but by selflessness. In the government of this universe is radical self-giving because at the head of this universe is the one who gave his life for sinners. That's what it means to be to set your mind and heart on things above. Because in this present world in which we live, we might assume that the way to get ahead, that the way to be satisfied is to put me number one. And when we look at Jesus, we realize that's not the way it works. Because he's king, and he's not only powerful, but he's loving. So set your mind and heart on that. And let that change the way that you relate to the people around you. Let that shape your love for your children and your spouse and your employees and your city and your country. Let that reality that Jesus sits as King of kings and Lord of lords and he rules and dominates not by self-centeredness but by radical giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Connect your mind and heart to that. Let that focus be the extension cord, if you will, that takes the power from the fact of your relationship with Christ to the action of your relationship and your actions for Christ. Make that your focus. This is why it's so important for us to have this focus on Christ, who he is, and what he has done. This is just what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 of Matthew and verse 33 when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is what Paul is talking about when he gives us certain things that we should think about in, in his letter to the Philippians. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of of praise, think about these things. This shapes every part of our lives. You may be under a cloud of grief this morning. Seeking the things above, setting your mind on Christ, means remembering this. You who are burdened with grief, that Jesus came to bear your griefs. He was considered to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he did so to end your grief. It could be that on the outside this morning you look calm, but just scratch a few layers away and underneath there is deep anger simmering in your heart towards somebody or towards something that's happened in your life. To set your mind on things above means to remember that the one who rules this universe was more deeply wrong than you ever have been or can be. And yet he looked at those who were crucifying him and he said, Father, forgive them. That's what it means to focus on your mind and heart on things above. 
Maybe that you're living, maybe you're living in despair right now. Maybe you have gotten practice at maintaining a cheerful demeanor when you're here and around other people. But if you just peel back the layer, there is just the sinking despair in your life. My friends, the one who is enthroned in heaven, who sits at the right hand of God, was the one who was stripped of all hope as he died for you so that he could give you hope. This is what it means to fix your mind and heart on Jesus Christ. To let the way you think about everything be dominated by who he is and what he's done for you. Now, from the fact of our life with Christ flows the focus on Christ. But all this implies that there is right now a struggle that we go through. And that's why we look toward the future of life in Christ. Look first of all at the facts of life in Christ Secondly, at the focus of life in Christ. And third now, the future of life in Christ. And we see this in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, right now, Christ is hidden. We don't see him. Right now, your true status as a son of or as a daughter of God, is hidden. But it will not always be hidden. You think about the people who first read this letter, the Colossians. They were just a ragtag group of first century peasants. There might have been some wealthy people in that church, but there were certainly a lot of poor people too. There were slaves, yes. Think about the Apostle Paul himself. He was probably a small, nearsighted man, bent over, scarred by the lashes of whips, looking, I'm sure, a lot older than he really was because of the kind of oppression that he had been through, unkempt, in a prison cell. What kind of glory is this? And yet the glory that awaits them and the glory that awaits us is such that if we were to see them now, we'd be tempted to worship them because they'd be so glorious. This is what John was talking about in his first epistle in chapter 3. He says, Beloved, we are right now the sons and daughters of God, but it does not appear what we shall be. But when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. You see, the, 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 this is not just something that's rooted in the past that has implications for the present. This is something that's rooted in the past that has implications for the present that has massive implications for the future. A future grace. A future glory. A, a time when we will be changed radically into the image of Christ. This is what we are looking at when we study through the book of Romans chapter 8. God is conforming those who believe in Jesus Christ to the image of his son. That is the glory that is being talked about here. And this gives us incredible hope and comfort. Think about this. Right now, you and I struggle with our fears. We struggle with our sins. We blunder along. We get hurt and we hurt other people. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, one day all that will change. And you will finally be who you are meant to be. You'll finally be the whole person that God is right now changing you to become. And it is that future hope that can energize you for the present. 
Not long ago, my family and I were vacationing, and we were, uh, as a family, climbing a mountain. It was a big mountain. If I had known how big it was before we started, I don't think I would have started. When we stood at the parking lot at the base of the mountain, my kids said, Daddy, look at that big rock way up there. Are we going to go up there? I said, of course not. Yes, we did. <laughs> and part of the way, we, we had to cross this, this steep incline of rocks. And thankfully, some kind people had, had, had put some iron holds in there from one stretch of that steep incline, uh, rocky incline, to another, and between there was a cable. And we got out there and we hung onto that cable and we worked our way across. Now, you know, I was thankful that that cable was secured in both places. There's not one, there's not one end of that cable that I would choose over the other. I need both of them, especially when I'm between them. You know, right now in our lives, we're like on that cable, but we're secured between the fact of Christ's death and resurrection for us and the future of our being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And it's the hope of that glory that energizes us and gives us joy in the journey of our life in Christ, knowing that this world is not all there is to it. Anchored beyond the mists of my sorrow and anchored beyond the clouds of your grief and doubt is a time when you will see him face to face. And you'll be like him. That is what Paul talks about when he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And that is the reality of our life in Christ. And from that life, remember, this wholeness, this maturity is not something that we claw toward. It's a life that we work from it's a life that's been given us by grace because of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, my friend, you may be here and you've not trusted in Christ as your Savior. You don't know that you have this life. You can know by calling out in faith on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And it could be that your whole life, you've always assumed it was just the other way around. You always thought that true completeness and wholeness and life was something that you had to work toward by keeping all the rules, by observing all the rituals, by having such standards. And my friends, if that were the case, then you'd have something to boast before God. But only God will be exalted in the last day. That's why salvation is all a matter of grace. It's a gift. It's a gift to be received by faith. By believing that what Jesus did on he, when he died on the cross was for you. And you can believe in that and be saved today.